Here, listen, if you want a title for today's message, I've called it Lessons from a Family Reunion. I want us to turn in our Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 18. If you're new to Sovereign Grace, we're presently in a series looking at the book of Exodus. And we're presently on journey with Israel between chapters 15 and 19, on journey with Israel between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. God has gloriously saved them by His grace. He's led them through the Red Sea wonderfully and gloriously. And now as they're en route to the Red Sea, they're going to the very place that God always said that He would meet them. The burning bush was at Mount Sinai. So they're heading to Mount Sinai to encounter God in a way that he said he would counter them and that they would worship him there. And today we're going at a rocket's pace. We're going to do a whole chapter. We're going to do Exodus chapter 18 in its entirety. And this then is the word of the Lord. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Well, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their case to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws 
and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the book of Exodus. And as Moses pens this to us, we recognize that ultimately this passage is breathed out by you. You're speaking to us as your people so that every word here is ultimately authored by you. Well, Lord, if this word is here for us, then it has something to tell us. It's not just for a few. It's for every one of us in the room. So, Lord, would you do only what you can do today? Would you speak to our hearts? Through my voice, would you speak to our hearts through the gift of the Holy Spirit? Would you open our eyes to learn the lessons from this family reunion? Lord, bless this message by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in September of this year, my wife and I and our kids are heading back to the UK for three weeks. And one of the things I love about going to the UK each and every time are the wonderful family reunions that await us there. Every time we go, we gather with families, sometimes in Wales, sometimes in England, because we have two different sides of the family. But in both cases, the same thing happens. Lots of hugging, lots of eating, lots of storytelling, and lots of catching up for lost time. And so whenever we see family, it feels like you go from naught to like 150 in one go. You never see them to all you see is them. And then you go back to zero again three weeks later. But when you're there, it's just so good to be with them. To be eating together, to be talking together, catching up together, laughing together, retelling stories from the past, enjoying stories in the present. That's what family reunions are all about. And by way of backdrop to this passage... Right here in this text, we have another wonderful family reunion. See, we don't know when or even particular why, but at some point upon this journey, Moses has sent his wife Zipporah and their two sons back to their home, which is actually in Midian. Maybe he sent them back because of the plagues. Maybe when the plagues were on, he got nervous for his wife and his two sons and said, hey, listen, this is getting a bit dicey. The uh, Egyptians are getting a bit edgy here. In fact, even Israel is getting a bit edgy. So why don't you pop back and be with your dad for a bit? Might be the best way I can care for you. Or maybe it was after the Red Sea, just after all the turmoil that have just taken place. I mean, everybody had just seen what had taken place and everybody had just seen the Egyptian army get wiped out. There was no doubt a lot of stress going on in all these different situations. So maybe after that, he said to his wife, you know what, dear, I'm thinking it might be good for you to go back be with your dad for a bit. 
take the boys, have a bit of time out. We don't know exactly when, but we do know he sent them back to Midian to be with her dad. And yet this is the day of their return. This is the day of their wonderful reunion in the wilderness. This is the day where they are reunited with Moses as he encamps with Israel around Mount Sinai, the very place that God had told them to return the people to. We see Jethro is involved. We see him introduced to us in verse 1 as the priest of Midian. But then it says Moses' father-in-law. It uses the word father-in-law 13 times in this text. He really, really wants us to understand that is my father-in-law. He wants us to understand those family connections. And we see Jethro involved. We see Zipporah involved. Moses' wife. He's been married to her for over 40 years. And so how sweet it would have been to be reunited with her again. The love of his life. And then there's his two sons. He hasn't seen them for some time. And we're told in those opening verses their names. Their names are Gershom and Eleazar. And he tells us their names because, as in Hebrew tradition, all their names mean something. And actually, what he's done with his two sons is he's really given them the names of Moses, his personal story of his life. So there's one son, Gershom, sojourner in a foreign land. That was Moses' story. He was in Egypt for most of his life, particularly his early years. And yet he wasn't an Egyptian at all. He was an Israelite. And then he flees and he goes to Midian. But he's not a Midianite either. He's constantly spending time in a foreign land. He's a sojourner in a foreign land. So he actually called one of his sons after that, Gershom. And the other one, Eleazar, means my God is my help. And so as he looks at his boys each and every day of his life, he's reminded, I am a sojourner in a foreign land, but my God is my help. He is faithful to me and kind to me. Now, I wouldn't suggest that you choose family names depending on that because it would just get a bit weird. But I do like the way they do it in this tradition. They tell their stories through their kids' names. So they're all involved. Jethro's involved. Zipporah's involved. Gershom and Eliezer are involved. This is the day of their return. This is the day of this great family reunion. But this is also the day when Moses and us would receive four important lessons. Four important lessons on leadership. A leadership which in itself is a blessing and provision from God. See, the backdrop to this text is all about a family reunion, but the headline over the entire text and the entire chapter is four important lessons on leadership, a leadership which in itself is a blessing and provision from God. And that's what this text is about. Four lessons on leadership, a leadership which in itself is a blessing and provision from God. Listen, maybe you're here today then and you are a leader, whether you be a pastor or a group leader or a sphere leader or a mission leader. It doesn't really make a lot of difference. You're a leader. Well, this text is talking to you because you find out in this text how to be a good leader. What are the marks of good leadership? And maybe you're here today and you aspire to leadership. In one format or another, you would love to be a leader within the context of the family of God, in the context of the local church. Maybe a pastor, maybe an elder, maybe a group leader. It doesn't really make a lot of difference. Well, this text helps you see what leadership is biblically and what you need to be to make that leadership a reality. 
And for all of us in the room, one of the things I love about this text, it is, it is a wonderful reminder of the blessing and provision from God that leadership really is. See, that's the banner that was been placarding over these entire texts from 15 through to 19, right? In chapter 15, we learn the Lord provides for His people. He saves His people. It's all by His grace. It's all for His glory. He saves His people. Now we start out in the wilderness. It's okay, kids. I got this. I'm going to give you water to drink, food to eat. I'm going to give you myself to guide you. When you face your enemies, God Himself is going to be present. He's going to give you the gift of friendship, brotherhood and sisterhood. People to hold your arms up when you're beginning to fail like Aaron and her. That's what we've been learning for the last few chapters, right? People of God grumbling. God providing, providing, providing. And in chapter 18, we learn that He even then provides us with leaders. Recognizing that that's what we need. We don't just need salvation and water and drink and himself and others. We need something else. We need leaders. And so he gives us a whole chapter on leadership and helps us see that it is indeed a blessing and provision from God. And what characteristics then all leaders need to follow. It's a cool text. So four points this morning about what it means to be a good leader that we all need to be leaning in from, none, whatever our circumstances, so that minimally we may look at God and say, Lord, thank you for providing that for me. It's a provision. Four things. Number one, what does it mean to be a good leader? Well, good leaders dearly love people. That's where it begins. Good leaders dearly love people people and that is exactly what you see here with Moses Moses dearly loves people see in Exodus chapter 2 verse 11 we learn very early on in the text that Moses really dearly loves the Israelites in chapter 2 verse 11 we read and on one day when Moses had grown up he went out to his people namely Israel and looked upon their burdens See, we can look over that and think, yeah, it's really interesting, nice. So he went out, he popped out from his palace, looked out, ooh, burdens, unlucky, moved back in. No, the book of Acts and Hebrews reads back into that and he tells us, no, he went out that day deliberately to see them. Why? Because God had been on the move in his heart. And he was becoming aware, these are my people. Why am I sitting in that palace when these are my people? And then he sees an Egyptian beating up one of the Israelites, actually trying to kill one of the Israelites. And Moses grabs the Egyptian, kills the Egyptian, and buries the Egyptian. Why? Well, ultimately, because he wants to save the people. He's aware, I'm one of you. How dare he treat you like that? He's fallen in love with the people of God in the right sense. And that love never changes, does it? I mean, even when he flees and goes to Midian, he does so because he's in fear of his life. But he's always continually still burdened about his people. And when God calls him then through the burning bush to go back to his people and tell Pharaoh to let his people go, he is incredibly nervous about that. But there's also something going on in his heart where he's aware, I want to do that because they're my people. And even when they're grumbling at him, even when they're moaning at him, even when they want to stone him, he still stays. Why? Because of love for God and for love for the people. They're my people. They're his people. 
We see it with Moses time and time again. He dearly loves people, like a good leader loves people. But he doesn't just love people that are like him. He loves people that are very, very different from him as well. Exhibit A, chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian. Don't let that pass you by too quickly. Yes, he is Moses' father-in-law. But no, he is nothing like Moses at all. He is a priest of Midian. Jethro would have given his life to worshipping and serving a pagan god. Not the real god, a pagan god. And most likely a group of pagan gods, which the Midianites would have worshipped together. And he was a priest. So part of his role was trying to evangelize other people to do exactly the same thing. Let's all worship these false gods together. That's what you do when you're a priest of Midian. Not just that, the Midianites weren't exactly the flavor of the month with the Israelites. They're not talked about very favorably in the rest of the Bible. I mean, for example, who was it that sold Joseph into slavery? Eh, the brothers. No, he was given to the Midianites. It was the Midianites that sold him to Egypt. The Midianites are never seen as very popular people. They are indeed descendants of Ishmael himself. There is some conflict here, difficulty here, between Israel and Midian. And yet, Moses, he loves him. He's my family. He's my father-in-law. He's my friend. He's a man made in the image of God, but he's a man that doesn't know God. And I want him to know God. And I love him. And you can tell he loves him and the way he responds to him. Look with me, with me at verse 7. It says, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down to him and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. You know, Moses began to show his love to his father-in-law by treating him with honor and respect. See, I don't know how Israel would have responded in this moment. There's a few things going on. First of all, when you're like the prophet of Israel, when you're effectively the king and prime minister of Israel, you don't go running out of your tent to anybody. They come running into you and ask for an audience with you. But not so with Moses. He goes running out to his father-in-law. He's my family. He's my friend. I love him. I'm not a big shot, I'm just a guy. I'm going out to meet with him. And as all Israel must have, having just gone through a war with the Amalekites, must have wondered, what is going on here? Moses just doesn't care. No, no, kids, they're my family. They're made in the image of God. I need to go be with my father-in-law. So he embraces his father-in-law. He kisses him. He bows down to him. And he brings him into his tent. Why? Because he wants to proclaim to him the glories of the Lord. Why? Because he wants to have him worship Yahweh. He's aware the false God that you're worshiping is false. And I love you enough to tell you that. So he brings him in his tent, verse 7, and then it continues, verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh. And to the Egyptians, for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced. He rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. 
Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Moses loves this man. And so he runs out to him and embraces him and kisses him and bowed down to him. He brings him in his tent. And you know what he does? He preaches, in effect, the Old Testament gospel to him right there and then. Because he's aware, you need a Savior. And I know him. You need a God, a true God, not a false God. You need to meet Yahweh. So he starts telling him all about Yahweh, all about the king, all about the problems that he's had with Israel, but all of the provision and deliverance from God himself. And what happens? Well, Through that conversation, humanly speaking, through that conversation, a great conversion takes place. None other than Jethro himself. See, God had always promised that Israel would be a blessing to the nations. As they proclaimed the glories of the Lord, they'd be a blessing to the nations. Well, here's the first blessing. One Midian priest gets saved. And we know he's saved. Because in verse 9, we read that he rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done. You know, it's easily missed, but that word for rejoice there, the particular word that's used, is only used three times in the Old Testament. And each and every time in the Old Testament, it means to delight in to the very core. Why is he delighting into the very core? Well, here's why. Because he just got saved. He's seen who God really is and he is delighting in him to the very core. That's why in verse 10 and 11, he begins to praise the Lord. That's why in verse 12, he offers a burnt offering and sacrifice to the Lord and understanding that I do this for the forgiveness of sins. I need to offer something. I need to offer a sacrifice. And in verse 12, we see him sitting with the elders having a meal. Why? Well, because it was as you sat with the elders having a meal that they would, in fact, effectively be leading you in a ceremony where they are admitting you are one of us now. You're with us. You're part of our people. See, God in his grace saves Jethro. Why? Well, because he loves him. How? Through Moses. Because he loved his father-in-law, who was nothing like him, enough to run to him, to embrace him and greet him, and to bring him in his tent and to tell him about Yahweh who changed his life. And God would use that conversation to bring about a glorious conversion in Jethro. My friends, to this day, I submit to you that that's what good leaders do. Namely, they really, really love people. People that are like them and people that are nothing like them. See, this is a command that we all have from God to us. In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says, For you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're all commanded as Christians to love people 
like ourselves. In other places in the Bible, it says, prefer others. Consider them more important than yourself. We're all called by God to do that. We're all called by God to love one another and to love people that aren't like us. To love our neighbor like ourselves. It's a calling on all our lives, and yet I submit to you, good leaders excel in that. It is a bare minimum. If you don't love people, never, ever consider being a pastor. (laughs) Sadly, I've met too many pastors at different times who don't like people. They just think of the church like a business, and they think about it as entrepreneurialism and leadership and speaking. It is not. It's about loving people. And all leadership in the local church, the very foundation of it is love. Moses excelled in that. He models it here so well in the way he is with Israel and Jethro alike. But that's not the only thing we learn here. Number two, we also learn that good leaders are humble enough to listen to advice. Good leaders are humble enough to listen to advice. Look with me at verses 13 through 16. It's wonderful. It says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Well, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. All right, here's the scene. Just yesterday, Jethro gets saved. A wonderful family reunion. And then what happens? The next day, my dad's busy, so he's got to go to work. Okay, so Moses goes back to work. It's just like in the UK, the day after Boxing Day, everybody, everybody's off Boxing Day, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, day after Boxing Day, everybody goes back to work. Even if you've got family in time, tough. You're going back to work. That's what everybody does. That's what's happening here with Moses. He is heading back to work. The difference is this day, uh, Jethro decides he wants to come with him. So Jethro starts looking on at all that Moses is doing, and quite clearly what you see when you look at what Moses is doing, it is somewhat intense. Verse 13 and 16, he explains to us that, listen, what I'm doing is I'm sitting with Israel all day, really, and I'm trying to work out disputes, and I'm trying to help them with statutes and laws from God to understand what they're to do. Now, if you're perceptive, what you're thinking is, hang on, How has he got statutes and laws? God hasn't met with him yet at Mount Sinai, no Ten Commandments. How does this work? Well, he's already told us in chapter 16, verse 4, there are already some in existence. So God has already given Moses a sneak peek of what's coming. He already has some statutes and laws in place right off the bat that God has given him. There is, in effect, and even in this moment, a list of things that they need to understand as the people of God and they need to operate. And Moses has taken it upon himself as the prophet, as the leader, to sort it all out, to help people see what's going on, to teach them these statutes and laws, and to help them with their disputes. Here's the problem, though. There are two to three million of them by now, and Moses is one. (laughs) I mean, you can just imagine it all day. You imagine the lines. I've been to the passport office. The line is huge. Two to three million people in one passport office. And then you get in and there's only one guy sitting there. That's what's taking place. Imagine the disputes. Well, she stole my sheep. My neighbor has ripped my tent. 
His son is getting flirty with my daughters. Her ox has killed one of my chickens. What am I to do? His guy ropes are on my plot. I paid for this plot. That's the type of thing that's going on here, okay? All these different disputes, two to three million people, it's all kicking off at different times. We already know that they're given to complaining and one guy, Moses, trying to figure out what to do. He's seeking to be conscientious. He's seeking to serve the Lord. And he's generally seeking in love to serve the people. And that's the background to what's going on. Well, Jethro's been looking on at this and Jethro's got a few words for young Moses. Verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. To summarize, this is what Jethro's saying. Moses, you are crazy. That's what he's saying there. That's what he's actually doing. He's saying, Moses, this, my friend, is not going to work out. Two to three million of them, one of you. I love your heart, Moses. You're a kind man. You just led me to Christ just yesterday. I love you dearly. You are nuts. This is not going to work out in the way you are operating. Moses, this isn't going to work. And it doesn't take long as we look on at this some three and a half thousand years later to realize Jethro's right, isn't he? No way was he going to be able to pull all this off by himself. But I am a leader. And so I was thinking about this this week and considering this moment over and over again and I couldn't help but wonder how hard this assessment might have been to hear by Moses. I mean, just yesterday... Jethro was worshipping the gods of Midian. Today, he's giving me some helpful feedback of how I'm going to lead the people of God. I mean, I am encamped as the leader of Israel with two to three million people around me. We're going okay. We're managing okay. This guy's been saved five minutes. He's giving me counsel on what to do. Do you not think that might have been a little bit tempting? It's like somebody who's never had children before. You've got eight kids. And they have been a parent for a day. And the next day they want to give you some counsel. And I've been thinking, I mean, I've only, been a, I've only been a parent 24 hours. But I've got some thoughts of what you need to do. That's what it would be like here. It would be challenging. It would probably be tempting. I think I might be tempted. I mean, I just wonder how the conversations with Sapporah, his wife, would have gone on these two different days. See, just yesterday, I reckon he would have been laying in bed holding Sapporah's hand and going, Sapporah. This is one of the best days of my life. The dad that we love got converted. The dad that we loved has put in faith in Yahweh. The dad that we loved is one of us. Heaven will be his home. Zipporah, this is an incredible day. There's no time for sleep. Let's just rejoice. I reckon when he came home this day, the conversation in bed might have been a bit different. I reckon it probably could have maybe even gone like this. Zipporah, yesterday was one of the best days of my life. Zipporah today, um, yeah, your dad kind of came with me to work. And Zipporah, I'm thinking, tomorrow? Is there any chance dad could stay home with you? Um, because like, I've got a lot on, Zipporah, and the stuff on. And you know, he gave me some feedback today, and it really wasn't helpful. But Zipporah, where's he been all my life, you know? He's been around five minutes. He's been a follower of Yahweh five minutes. He 
He wasn't with me in the plagues. He wasn't with me in the Red Sea. I was the one walking through a dry ground, holding the staff. I'm doing this. I'm getting it going on. We're working it. I've been the one that's been entrusted by God. He wasn't there when God actually met with me on the mountain in the burning bush. But five minutes ago, he starts following Yahweh and today he wants to give me some advice. And I'm not bitter about it. Zipporah, I'm not bitter. Not bitter at all. But tomorrow, could he stay home with you? You know, I could understand it if he was feeling that way. But quite evidently in the way he responds, he doesn't seem to be feeling that way. What he actually does is respond with great humility. Wonderful humility. You've got some advice for me? Yeah, good, I'm ready. Bring it on. I need all the help I can get. That, in my mind, is profound humility. He's leaning in, listening up. He's not thinking his role is unique. It is unique. But he's not standing on that thinking, well, it's just a unique role. No one can counsel me. Just leave me alone. What, who are you? You follow of Yahweh. You never even knew him yesterday. Thanks very much. No, thanks. He's not doing that. He's leaning in. Listening to advice, he is humble enough to listen to advice. Kevin DeYoung says it this way. He says, a lot of people, when they get to a place of social prestige, power or privilege, feel like everyone ought to be subservient to them. They lord it over other people. But Moses understood, I may be the prophet of God's people, the one who God used to defeat the most powerful empire in the world, and the one who is single-handedly judging all the cases for two to three million people. For I am the one who they all took, for, who they all looked to for leadership. But here comes my father-in-law with advice. And I'm going to show him respect. I think that's wonderful. And therein lies, I think, a wonderful, wonderful second lesson on leadership. Good leaders are always humble enough to Listen to advice. Whether that's off somebody who's been a Christian 30 years or three minutes, or maybe somebody who's not even a Christian at all. But they recognize God can use people to speak to me. I don't hold the monopoly on all things. And so they want to listen to advice. To this day, it's a humility that all leaders, if they want to be good leaders, need to exhibit in their lives. Now listen, it's not then that all good leaders have to take our advice. We must keep a distinction there. It is possible for people to give genuinely good advice to a leader and yet that leader nonetheless to say, listen, I would just have a different perspective on that and we're going to run with something different. They must be able to do that because leaders are going to give an account before the Lord for what they do. So they have to do in line with their conscience about what, God's, what they fence God is calling them to do. A sign of leadership, good leadership, isn't necessarily that they take on all my personal advice. And we need to make that caveat, otherwise you'll be going to leaders even this week. Everybody in Paramount will have feedback for Riley, and you'll feel he's arrogant. You'll be coming back to me and let me know, he's so proud, he just doesn't listen to my advice. No, he's listening, he just disagrees. <laughs> good leaders, it is okay for good leaders not to take our advice. But I submit to you, good leaders in their humility always listen to advice. They make time to, yeah, share with me. What's your thinking? I want to learn. Because good leaders, I think, understand the importance of gaining counsel. Proverbs 1 verse 5 says, Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. Proverbs 11 verse 14, For lack of guidance, a nation falls. 
but many advisors make victory sure. In Proverbs 12, verse 15, the way of the fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. See, I think good leaders are humble enough to know I can't just assume on myself that I've got all the monopoly and what I'm all meant to be doing. The fool, the, the way of the fool seems right to him, but the wise man listens to advice. Good leaders listen to advice because they're where they need it. And they're aware that one of the ways God speaks to us is through people, whether they've been a Christian two minutes or 52 years. God will use people. To help clarify things, help bring insights to things, help even bring direction in things, just like Jethro does right here. Moses, right now, is an A-grade leader. He's listening to advice. He's loving people. But there's definitely some growth needed in Moses' life. And that brings us to lesson number three. Good leaders recognize that they just aren't designed to lead alone. They recognize, I cannot do this by myself. I need others. I need other leaders to stand alongside me. I need others involved to be able to get the job done. Verse 19b through to 23. Jethro says, You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the, about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men, for all the people who, all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will, be there, will go to their place in peace. You know, Moses here is learning the important lesson that good leaders cannot do it by themselves. They're not designed by God to do it by themselves. They need to have others involved in the leadership. And from this moment on then, Moses is an even better leader because in verse 24 we read, So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. He became a better leader because he not only recognized, I can't do this by myself, he starts to disseminate and delegate the responsibilities, applying what he's been told, and in the application there is blessing. He understood then in this moment, Jethro, you're right. I ain't going to manage this. If I keep trying to do this, I'm going to burn myself out. I'm going to get exhausted. And I'm going to wear the people out. I mean, look at the line every day. Who's going to want to line up there? This ain't going to work. I'm trying to do my best faithfully, but I'm clearly not designed by God to do this by myself. Therein lies, I think, one of the most important lessons for any leaders and any aspiring lessons, the leaders, the reality that we should recognize that we just aren't designed to lead alone. John Calvin says it this way. He says, Therefore let all, whether kings or magistrates or pastors of the church or mothers or fathers know that whilst they strain every nerve to fulfill their duties, something will always remain which may admit correction and improvement. For here too, it is worthwhile to remark that no single mortal 
can be sufficient to do everything. However many and various may be the endowments wherein they excel. For who shall equal Moses, whom we have seen to be unequal to the burden when he undertook the whole care of governing the people? Let then God's servants learn to measure carefully their powers, listen, lest they should wear out by ambitiously embracing too many occupations. That's brilliant. Why is it that so many leaders wear out? They bear too many occupations. They're doing too many things. And instead of asking for help, hey, I need help here. Help me lead, help me carry this. They do not because they are proud and not humble. And in their pride, they try and soldier on alone. And then they get burnt out and allegedly then it's the church's fault. No, it's not. It's their fault. They haven't disseminated their information. They haven't disseminated what God's given them. They haven't looked to others for help. They haven't confessed, hey, listen, I feel like I'm carrying this too much. And they wear out. They get exhausted. A mark of good leadership is they recognize, I can't do this by myself. And they pull others around them. John Calvin, he he continues his statement this way. I love this. He says, for one ray of sun was never meant to illuminate the whole world. Isn't that beautiful? One ray of sun, never meant to illuminate the whole world. However good a leader may be, all they've got at best is one ray of sun. It takes a sun to illuminate a world. It takes many people walking arm in arm, serving together, leading together for the glory of the Lord, for the sun to illuminate the world. You know, this is a lesson that I think all aspiring leaders have to learn, that they simply aren't designed to lead by themselves, whether they be a pastor, whether they be a group leader, whether they be a ministry team leader, whether they be a mission leader. We just aren't designed to just solo it all ourselves. Not been designed that way. We're designed to share the load. It's the reason why in the local church, plurality of elders is so important. Because no one pastor's got it all. They haven't got it in gifting. They haven't got it in ability. They haven't got it in strength. They haven't got it in accountability. No wonder the Bible all the way through, particularly in the Old Testament, always says, call the elders, not call the elder. It never talks about it as a solo. It's always the elders. Why? Because it recognizes there's going to be a group here in leadership together, standing side by side, and they're going to need one another. We learn it in Exodus chapter 18. It's also why it's so important in the local church that we have a clear and robust understanding of the church as body. It's a body. God is the head. He's the ultimate leader. For the rest of us, we're just playing a part. But we need all the parts to win the race. We need all the parts to get the job done. We need everybody serving side by side, leading in different spheres and in different ministries to get the body built so that it builds itself up in love. Good leaders recognize that they just aren't designed to lead alone. And that leads us immediately on to number four. Good leaders delegate wherever appropriate to other good leaders. Verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, 
But any small matter, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Moses knew in his role that there were some things he couldn't pass on. They're the things outlined in verses 19 and 20, which are effectively preaching and teaching the word of God, the statutes and laws of God, and praying for the people. It's the responsibility in this circumstance of a prophet, the responsibility of a judge in the New Testament, the responsibility of pastors. To preach and teach God's word and pray for the saints. Something they're called to do. You can't be passing that out too quickly because that's something set aside for that role. But what Moses also learned in this moment is there were several other things in life that he could pass on and should pass on. And he should delegate them to other people. And so he started to give time to finding faithful men, men of conviction who feared the Lord who loved Yahweh with all their hearts and minds and strength, men of capability. They were actually able to lead. They could get the job done. And men of character. They weren't willing to accept a bribe. They were trustworthy men. And he gave himself into finding such men that he could then delegate responsibility to over thousands, over fifties, over hundreds, over tens. You know, one of the things that stood out to me about this text as I studied it this week, and one of the things I so love and appreciate about it is seeing the reality then that within the space of a few short verses, it's clear that God has provided all of those men. That's wild. Two to three million people. Okay, I'm looking for a group of guys, clearly a very good group of guys, big group of guys, to get the job done. Oh, who have I got? Well, it's clear that God put on his heart, he's given you all of these. Go get them. Go delegate to them. They're good godly men. Capable, able to lead. Men of character. Men who really love the Lord. And one of the things I got to thinking about then is the reality that God still operates like this today. He provides for his people. He provides what everybody needs. In the same way he cared for his people in the Old Testament as the people of God, giving him Moses and now all these different individuals that are going to play a part in leading. He still does it today. He still cares for his people today. And I got to thinking then just how kind God has been to us over the last nine years as a local church. He's been profoundly kind. See, nine years ago on this week was two weeks before we moved to Australia. And I remember just sitting in my office, which was pretty much unpacked at that time. I had one chair in it that I didn't own. It was the church's. So I sat on this chair. All our other stuff was in a wagon making its way to Australia. It was probably in China by then. I don't know where it was. But I remember sitting on my sofa and just thinking, Lord, this is either going to be the greatest adventure of my life or I've made the worst decision of my life. But any which way, where we go? And I remember realizing very quickly, having come from a very big team of a big church in the UK, that men that I'd served with for years, understanding, Lord, I don't know anybody there. Lord, you're going to need to provide. I ain't going to be able to do it by myself. I need you, and I need people. And God has faithfully provided those people over the last nine years again and again and again. Why? Because he's the one building the church, not me. He's the one who provides for people all the time. And I really sensed him put on my heart 
over this week, three different groups of leaders that I want to draw attention to. And I want to draw attention to them because I think in drawing attention to them, what we're actually doing is drawing attention to the provision of God. He is the one who's provided these men and women for us. He's the one who's given the gift of leadership and then provided it in our local church, enabling us to move forward as a church. And so I was thinking first and foremost about the pastoral team and the core team. Now the one thing that becomes apparent when you go into a new country to plant a church is you need other elders as quickly as possible. But at the same time, you have the Apostle Paul sort of sitting on your shoulder and talking to your ear about, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. <laughs> so you're finding the two in balance. I need to find elders, but I mustn't be hasty on the laying on of hands. But I thank God that, that nine years on, we have a pastoral team uh, with Brendan Willison, Patrick Chavez, and Riley Spring. Three wonderful men that are carrying the heart of this church in their own hearts. Men who model what we've talked about here in terms of their love and their humility. Men who want to delegate and build things and play a part. And then there's the core team. So my wife, Emma Taylor, and Meg Chavez, who lead our Titus II ministry. Andrew Lung, who does a wonderful job of really what I would call a deaconing role. It's waiting on tables. It's administrating so many things in our church that make it possible for guys like us to give ourselves to preaching and teaching the word and to prayer. But Andrew helps me massively. Not only in this local church, but with different stuff we're doing globally. Ollie Pierce, likewise, just serving wonderfully in our church, overseeing our finances with integrity. Wonderful integrity. If there's one thing you want in the guy overseeing your finances, it is integrity. A man who fears the Lord, a man of integrity, a man who it says here would hate a bribe. But God provided Ollie Pierce to be that man for us. Simon and Michelle Walker, who play a wonderful part in, in our church life. And I deliberately gave them that title of broad church life because there's so many things they can do and there are so many things that need to get done. So I want their counsel and thoughts and advice on things and you want to be able to deploy responsibilities to them. And then Janelle Pierce, who oversees, I think, half of the church and who are presently out of the side of those doors being cared for. Now, I thank God for the provision of all those people that I mentioned there. So if you could just stand for me if I mentioned your name. And let us honor the Lord in the provision of each of these people. Let's stand. I will get into trouble from my wife about that later. I do not care. <laughs> the second group is the gospel community leaders and assistants. You know, in church life, you can't just disseminate the governance role, the leadership role. You need to disseminate the care role. If I was the only pastor in this church, given the amount of members in this church we now have, if I was to visit one person and have lunch with you every day, so if I gave one lunch every day, seven days a week to you, I would see you one and a half times a year. That is not going to be great care. You ain't going to feel cared for. So you have to disseminate care. You have to build groups, in my opinion, small groups, where you can train and care for leaders who then train and care for people and give their lives to people, be bothered about people. And so we have, I think, 10 groups at present that have group leaders and assistant group leaders, four people that are involved in the leadership 
of groups. So I want us to honor and thank God for you as well. So if you are a gospel community leader and or assistant, if you can also stand and let's thank you as well. Don't, don't be shy. <laughs> I saw most of our group leaders serving in kids' ministry this morning, which is just, well, isn't that typical? And then there was our next generation leaders that I really felt the Lord put on my heart this week. You know, if we have a future as a church, next generation is vital. You have to give ourselves, not only to unbelievers, but to unbelievers that are actually the other side of those doors. Training them, discipling them, proclaiming the glories of God to them. We can't do that ourselves. I definitely cannot do that. If you've ever heard me speaking to kids, I speak to them exactly like I'm speaking to you. It doesn't go well. They have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm like an on-off switch. I've got nothing going on. And then I try and make them laugh. And even my jokes aren't funny to them. And you're like, I thought he was hilarious. It takes gifting that I do not have to really disseminate to them. And so I think about SG Youth. Emma and I have the privilege of leading the SG Youth at the moment. But Paul Reese, Josh Fadasheri, Chelsea Silla, and Abby Chavez do a wonderful job of influencing the next generation, giving themselves on Friday nights. Friday nights. You know the Friday nights when you're all driving home thinking, I just want to be at home with slippers on. They're doing that for 30 seconds. Then they're turning around and coming out to youth to influence the next generation. And then if I mentioned all the kids' leaders, we'd be here all day. But all of our kids' leaders have room leaders, age group leaders. So once again, Paul Reese, who doubles up. Simon and Michelle Walker, who have stood every occasion but can stand again. Charlotte Willis and Giovanni Amato, all who lead those ministries. So can you all you stand as well as we thank God for you. <laughs> Wonderful. And here's what I want you to understand. The Lord has provided them all. It's his doing. He's the one building the church. He's the one that provides for everything that his family needs. He's the one that provides for all that his church needs as he seeks to build it. What we have here then is a wonderful family reunion in the wilderness. A wonderful family reunion. Moses must have been thrilled. But it turned out to be way more than just a reunion. It turned out to be four important lessons on leadership. A leadership which in itself is a blessing and provision from God. In the same way he provides salvation and water and food and people and grace and himself, he also provides us with leaders. So may we always be grateful for all that he's provided. It's all his doing. And so they're the gifts. And with all attention now turn to the giver. Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind to us in the way you care for us. And some gifts are gifts and abilities. And other gifts are actually people. Lord, we recognize that you are the one providing us with those good gifts. And we do, we do thank you for Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney. We thank you for the way you are building us together with your precision, with your zeal, with your wisdom and care. Oh Lord, as we now sing to close, Lord, we want to transfer all glory to you. You're the provider. You're the giver. And so would all glory go to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.